Church, good to be with you here this morning. I'm going to move aside a couple of things here. If you um, followed along in a scripture reading this morning, you would say to yourself, well, this is Thanksgiving and he's got communion texts. Well, I can assure you that even though we're going to revolve around the Last Supper, it is a Thanksgiving message. And this has been a difficult one for me to prepare uh, because the Buckeyes lost yesterday <laughs> to the team up north and, and there is no joy in Mudville. Uh, mighty Ohio State has struck out. And uh, that's the situation for me, but I'll battle through it. There are worse things in life, although I can't imagine what they might be. <laughs> There's a village in uh, Chile. It's uh, north of Santiago, and it's along the Pacific coast. And the name of the town is Chungongo. It only has around 300 inhabitants, and it's incredibly arid. Uh, at most, they get maybe around six inches of precipitation a year. And so they have to truck in water every week, and the inhabitants spend 10% of their income just for water, just for water. But there was a Canadian scientist who was um, a cloud physicist. I didn't even know they had such things. That sounds like something that Microsoft would have. Um, but he thought, you know, I think I can solve this problem for them. Because they always had clouds above and they would blow in off of the Pacific Ocean, but the droplets were so infinitesimally small that they couldn't harness it. They could never get it to form into rain. So they went up to the mountain that was right by the village, and they erected eucalyptus poles, and they hung on them a wall of finely woven propylene nets, each the size of about eight queen-size bedsheets all sewn together. Seventy-five of those water nets were put there to sift the clouds that sweep constantly in from the Pacific Ocean over the mountain. The plastic sheets have tiny propylene fibers meshed in tiny little triangles. Just as dew collects on grass, the small water, water particles of the clouds from the fog, they collect on these fibers. Now to get an idea of how small these droplets are in the clouds, it takes 10,000 of those water particles to coalesce into one drop of water the size of a tear. And that's why it never rains. But each day, these 75 water nets each collect 40 gallons of water a day. That's 3,000 gallons daily from the drifting clouds and fog, just shy of 1.1 million gallons a year. Now here in the US, on a daily basis, you and I use about 90 gallons of water. Hard to believe. Prior to this ingenious method of collection, they survived on four gallons of water. I'm sure it was a smelly neighborhood. Um, it makes me think, though, Sitting in the pews of every church in America that I can think of are water-parched Christians. We're tired, 
were brittle, uh, trodden with care, overburdened, worried, listless, like so many dried and shriveled souls. Has our difficult environment done this to us? I mean, certainly Satan wants to do that. But I think that God has designed a water cashment system for our souls and that it can feed us every day. And I believe that the system he has designed is called gratitude and thanksgiving. At the time of the crucifixion leading up to it, the Last Supper, I don't think there was a more parched soul on earth than Jesus himself. It seemed that almost everything was against him. His disciples still didn't really seem to get it. Crowds demanded his constant attention. He was teaching daily. The high priests were corrupt. The monetary system of the temple was corrupt. So many had missed the point of their own religion. Some were actively plotting to kill him. And yet, in the upper room, Jesus gave thanks for it. And it's all embodied in thanking his Father for the bread, his broken body, and the cup, his shed blood. The purpose of the message today is to walk us through, with Jesus through those final hours. We want to draw some lessons from the Master about thankfulness that can nourish our souls through the tough times. And as Chinchungo discovered, the clouds that hover above us, properly harnessed, pour out all the blessings of God. Um, so let's just walk through the story. You and I know the story of the Last Supper, the last week of Jesus. We've been through it. There are five accounts of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Mark and Matthew pretty much track each other. Luke diverges a little bit in his chronology, but his chronology is geared more toward thought than toward sequence of events in time. John's, 80% of John's whole gospel is unique to John, and John includes all of those upper room discourses that none of the other synoptic gospels who follow the same synopsis had. And then there is Paul, who received directly from the Lord Jesus that which he delivered unto the Corinthians, that the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. So there are five accounts of the Last Supper. Um, let's take a look at the story of Jesus' last evening on earth. Um, it tells us that the chief priests and scribes wanted to kill him, but they were afraid to do it in public for fear that it would cause a riot. So Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a threat to traditional power. He was a threat to traditional religion. John says, though, that at this point, Jesus knew exactly what was going on in the hearts of his disciples. He knew who would betray him. And Mark continues in his gospel with Judas going straight to the chief priests, receiving 30 pieces of silver, and then he began to look for an opportune time. Luke said he wanted to betray Jesus apart from the crowd. And Jesus knew this was going on. Now, 
He's in the home of Simon the leper. And now he gets this lavish anointing from this woman who brings this alabaster vial of nard, pure nard. Now that costs 200 denarii. Um, actually, yeah, um, about 200 denarii. Wrong, 300 denarii, five-sixths of a year's income. That's how much it costs. How much do you make a year? Divide it by six, multiply that by five. That's how much it cost her. 200 denarii in that day could feed 5,000 people. And she poured 300 denarii on Jesus' head. Now, that would have killed me because I'm allergic to a lot of perfumes. <laughs> okay? And they immediately began to rebuke her because, wow, this could have all been given to the poor. And Jesus reminded them of the context. You've always got the poor. You don't always have me. Let her do this. So then they need to prepare the Passover. Jesus sends Peter and John. But this tells you how dangerous the week was. He sent them clearly with a code. He didn't even tell them where it was going to be. He didn't tell them who was going to meet them, but he said it's going to be a guy. And when they get in the city gates, there's going to be a guy and he's going to have a pitcher of water. That's unusual. Women carried the water then, as they do now, right? But this time it was going to be a guy. It doesn't even say they talked to each other until they got to the house. And then there was a large upper room and Peter and John two trusted disciples prepared the Passover. They get to the upper room early in the evening. All 12 plus Jesus are in the upper room. And Jesus starts to pour out his heart. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, because I'll never eat it again till I come back. So now, he takes the first cup. This is the beginning of the meal. This is a Passover meal. It's supposed to be eaten in haste, but clearly with all the discourses, this one didn't go down quite that way. But there's a first cup, and it was at the beginning of the meal, and he gives thanks for the first cup. And he says, I'm not gonna drink from this until the kingdom comes. And it's the cup of fellowship. Judas was there with this cup. Everybody got to drink of that. It's the cup of fellowship. Then he gets up and Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He's showing them that his thankful heart is a servant's heart. And that they're to be the same way. He draws lessons from that and tells them, I'm giving you an example to follow. Then he announces his betrayal. He quoted Psalm 41.9, so he knew the messianic verses that preceded his earthly life that were pointing to how it was all going to go down. And in Psalm 41.9 it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And a few minutes later in John's account, he became very troubled in his spirit. Oops, sorry, I have a lapel mic here. Yep. He became very troubled in his spirit. 
And uh, he said, one of you is going to betray me. A bomb just went up off in the upper room. What? One of us? Surely it's not I. Surely it's not I. Peter to John, ask Jesus who it is. Who is it? The one I dip a sop and give it to him. And he dips it. He gives it to Judas. Judas says, surely not I, Lord. And he said, oh, it's as you said. Jesus reaching out to him. Uh, Jesus said, that what you're going to do, do it quickly. Let's get this over with. And Judas left immediately. It was night. He went straight to the Sanhedrin. And um, while Jesus is in the upper room, they're getting their act together in the middle of the night in Caiaphas and Annas' house. They're getting a cohort to go apprehend him in Gethsemane. Meanwhile, Jesus gives his teachings. Now this is where, and this is difficult, and I don't like to dive, everything I do is theological, but I don't like to dive into like nuances of doctrine sometimes, but I think this is really important. You see with the story of Jesus and Judas, where divine foreordination meets human freedom. Jesus said, it is foreordained that I am going to do this, that I must suffer. This is part of a prearranged plan. But then the question is, did Judas have to do what he did then? Did God make it so that Judas had to do this? Mark points out that Jesus made it clear that his own path to the cross had been foreordained. But Jesus said, woe to Judas, who made himself the one through whom the prophecy was fulfilled. You find here a very mysterious balance between God's sovereign knowledge of all that is to be and Judas' free will in every single choice he made. God didn't make Judas do what he did. Judas chose it. But God knew what was going to happen. And he orchestrated Judas-free actions to work according to God's plan. Could Judas have chosen differently? I have to believe the answer is yes. But if he had chosen differently, the prophecies might have been different. And the one fulfilling the prophecies might have been different. So it's enough for us to know two things and to hold them in balance. And the first is this. Judas made his own path. And two, no path pursued by man can thwart the purposes of God. You get to choose whether you follow Christ. God knows if you will. And isn't it something to think that if you follow Christ, perhaps all eternity has been oriented in some degree to aid you in your pursuit of Christ. What a great God we have. Now we get to the Lord's Supper. Jesus moves to the sequence that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 11. 
And that's what we call the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. First, Jesus thanked God for the bread. I received of the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Note that Jesus gave thanks, not just for a broken loaf of bread, but for all that that bread represented in his body, his sufferings, the beatings, the turmoil on the cross, the swollen heart, the labored breathing, the fists to his face, the thorns in his brow, the nails in his hands, the extreme tension in Gethsemane, the stumbling as he carried his cross, his parched throat, the spear in his side. He saw it all. And the loaf had to be broken into 11 or 12 separate pieces, depending on whether Judas was there. I do not believe he was, but there are some who make a case that he could have been, and maybe they're right. But one piece for each disciple. Now think about this too. Figuratively, Jesus' body has been broken into a million pieces at the communion table. For in a sense, we're all in the upper room. Jesus' body was broken for each one of us. Every time someone is saved, it is Jesus' broken body and shed blood that atones for the sinner and reconciles that sinner to God. His body was broken for me, and I got a piece of it in the upper room. Then he goes, then he goes to the cup. And this cup now was the second cup. Remember, the first one was the cup of fellowship. Now he offers to his disciples in the Eucharist ceremony the cup of redemption, the cup of the new covenant in his blood. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, consider for a moment the blood of Christ. The first blood spilt by Jesus was in Gethsemane. It was shed through bursted capillaries beneath his skin. Luke, a physician, recorded it. He said Jesus was in agony, that he sweat great drops of blood. This condition is called hematohydrosis. It's extremely rare. The blood vessels that fed Jesus' sweat glands ruptured, and they exuded blood via his follicular canals. Now this is the result of suffering an extreme level of stress as he poured out his heart to God. It says an angel was there strengthening him. It was so difficult in Gethsemane as he cries out to God, if it's possible, let this pass from me. 
Next, Jesus is punched and he's bruised from abuse from, a, from Caiaphas' attendance. Then under Pilate, he scourged 39 times with a flagellum, also called a cat of nine tails. His back would have been in tatters. Then a crown of thorns clubbed to his head, more blood in his hair, streaming into his eyes, down his face. Then a robe placed on him, and as the blood begins to coagulate, then it's ripped off. More blood as Jesus carries his cross atop his shredded back. Then the nails in his hands and his feet. His internal bleeding would have been excessive from blunt force trauma and penetration. Jesus' cause of death would have been from the accumulation of abuse, asphyxiation, from not being able to expel air in his lungs, and the accumulation of pressure around his heart that may have actually ruptured it. In the end, the spear is thrust into his dead body and outpours blood and water. Jesus foresaw a good deal of this, maybe all of it. And when he thanked his Father for the cup of the covenant, he was not just thanking the Father for the wine in the cup. He was thanking the Father for all that he was going to suffer, for all that that represented in the upper room. At the moment, as he faces what appears to be his doom, he is thankful for that. He goes on after the supper. He gives a number of discourses recorded in John. One great passage is his high priestly prayer for you and me, that we would all be one. They sing a hymn before they go out. It's probably Psalm 118. Think about what he's saying as they get ready to get up and go out of the upper room. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Get, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. What a great hymn sung at almost every Passover meal. It's the final Passover hymn. And it was all about Jesus. And Jesus saw in the scriptures that the Lord would sustain him. Then the journey to Gethsemane. There's a long discussion of Peter's denial of Christ. It would have been a shorter discussion if Peter wouldn't have disagreed so strongly. But he said, Peter, Peter, Simon, Satan has desired to have you to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Peter said he's ready to go to prison and death for Jesus. Jesus said, Peter, Simon, the cock isn't going to crow three times. Or, crow once before you've denied me three times tonight. Well, Jesus um, 
clearly knows that Peter has something to prove. And before they leave, Peter says, hey, there's some swords over here. Should we take them? (laughs) And Jesus said, it's enough. And so Peter grabs one up. I'm going to prove to Jesus and I'm going to stand in the breach, man. I'm ready. So they make their way. They leave uh, the city. They climb the Mount of Olives. They cross the Brook Kidron. They come to a garden that was well known to everybody because Jesus met there often. He leaves eight disciples in one place to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John beyond. And then Jesus begins to pour out his heart. He was in agony. An angel appeared to strengthen him. He was praying fervently. He was sweating great drops of blood. Then Jesus found his disciples sleeping from sorrow. And he says, can't you stand watch with me? Not just one hour. And then he prayed a second time, my father, if this can't pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. That's the third cup. Lord, if this can't pass from me unless I drink it, thy will be done. This is the cup of suffering that Jesus alone could endure. And it was the cup of vicarious suffering on behalf of the entire world. Jesus was suffering for us. It would involve a short separation from his father, and separation from all but a few in this world. Judas arrived with the Roman cohort at that point. Jesus immediately confronted them. Jesus takes the offensive here. Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus responded, I am he. He is in italics. It was not in the original. It was added by translators. Jesus responded, I am. Do you remember what happened? They all drew back and fell to the ground. It knocked them down. When he invoked his own divine name, they drew back. They fell down. Jesus, continuing authoritatively, taking command a second time, who do you seek? And they said again, Jesus the Nazarene, from a position of dominance, now Jesus says, if you're seeking me, let these go their way. And so he secured the freedom of the 11. Peter, seeing that Jesus had the initiative, emboldened, draws out the sword. Now's the time. I wonder if he was aiming for the neck. He got the ear. And this was not just anybody's ear, this was the slave of the high priest, this was Malchus. And Jesus turned to him, he heals Malchus' ear, he puts it on, boy, wouldn't it be great? (laughs) Wouldn't it be great to be a surgeon with that ability? You're okay. Um, But he said, put your sword in its sheath. And then he refers again to the cup. Get this, he goes back to the cup. The cup which, I have, which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is the third cup, the, suff of vicarious, the, the cup of vicarious suffering. And that is the cup that Jesus would be drinking right up until his death. The cup that he was thankful for. 
The cohort led him away to Annas, formerly the high priest, but currently the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And that's where we're going to end our narrative. I think there are lessons and applications from Jesus' expressions of thanksgiving. And I'd like to offer up just a few. The first lesson that I gain from this is that Jesus demonstrated that thankfulness is its most powerful when it is a perspective more than a response. When it's a perspective more than a response. We often think that gratitude is a response to something good happening to us, don't we? Oh, I'm so grateful. Oh, honey, what great stuffing. Oh, you know, turkey was perfect and it's moist this year. Kudos, you know. Um, something good has happened to us. But what if what is happening to us does not seem to be at all good? What then? Actually, gratitude is not so much a response as a perspective. Gratitude sees all of life as flowing from God's benevolent hand, Romans 8.28. That perspective determines our response in both good times and bad. If you're only grateful after something happens to you, you're not really grateful, you're just a satisfied consumer. We have to be more than that, do we not? We have to be governed by this life that's within us, by the power within us. Second thing that I think is a good lesson is that there's a difference between the kind of thankfulness that denies the severity of our earthly reality and the kind of thankfulness that lifts its sights above us. Have you known those people that are kind of joyful all the time, but they won't listen to anything bad? If you tell them how tough it is, they're not very good listeners. They're always trying to think of the next scripture verse they're going to give you so that you don't feel the way you do. Do you trust those people? No, I don't either. A lot of heads for those of you that are watching, they went this way. <laughs> no. Why? Because they're Pollyannas, right? It's a Pollyanna view of life. Truly grateful people are not blindly or foolishly optimistic. They see something different. And a great illustration of this is from 2 Kings 6, 8-23. It's the story of Elisha and Gehazi at the city of Dothan. You remember that story? The Syrian army has surrounded, they're looking for Elisha. And uh, Gehazi goes up and he's at the walls of the city of Dothan and he says, oh no, we're surrounded by this army. And he goes and he says, my father, my father, look at this. And Elisha comes up and here's what he says. He says, don't worry about this. There are more with us than there are with, are with them. And Gehazi must be like, what in the world? And then Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And spiritually, the veil is removed between this world and the next. 
and he sees angels with chariots ringing the Syrian army. And in not much time, they put them all to flight. How does one chase a thousand and two put ten to flight in the Old Testament? It's because somebody else is fighting for you. We don't have to deny reality to be thankful. We need to see a greater reality superimposed over the present reality. And we need to be grateful that no matter how crazy it looks, God is on his throne and we belong to him. Third thing, third lesson, is that the attitude of thankfulness, the perspective of thankfulness, does have three great enemies. And I wanna let you know what they are. The first is the sense of entitlement. You ever gone to a restaurant, you don't get great service and you snap at the waitress or say something snide, or you don't say it to her, you smile at her, but then you turn to your wife, this is a lousy waitress. Oh, this food is terrible, all right? Um, it can lead to things like jealousy. It can lead to things like road rage. It can lead us to think that something ought to be a certain way when it isn't. It should be better. They shouldn't treat me like this. What if we just dropped all sense of entitlement? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it as something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What if you, the king of heaven, said, I will humble myself to be a baby in a stable, in a manger. I will grow up under the tutelage of human peasants. We need to drop our sense of entitlement. We need to be like Jesus. I need to be like Jesus. The second, second enemy of thankfulness is preoccupation. <laughs> you know how you can just get so busy in so many different tasks? And you can get so preoccupied um, with all of the troubles around us. Um, Corey Ten Boom, do you know who she is? She, during World War II, she and her sister Betsy were imprisoned by the Nazis for shielding um, um, Jews. Um, in her book, The Hiding Place, she talks about when um, she and her sister were transported to one of the worst camps in Germany at Ravensbrück. And on entering the barracks, they found themselves in an overcrowded and flea-infested place. Corey was totally bummed, and Betsy told Corey to stop and thank the Lord for every detail of their living quarters. 
But Corey at first uh, refused to give thanks for the fleas. Now we have a little miniature dachshund. She doesn't get fleas often, but when she does, they always seem to bite my wife. Not me, they bite my wife, and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> um, but then we give my, our, our dog a little pill, and then she becomes um, a human uh, toxic waste dump to fleas, and then when they bite her, they get the drug that's under our dog's skin. But uh, Corey finally succumbed to Betsy, and she said, okay, okay. I will thank God for the fleas. Now, the thing that surprised them in this worse than they've ever been in camp that they were in was that they were able to openly have Bible studies in the barracks. And that was something that had been very difficult next to impossible to do anywhere else. You know why they had such, un such freedom to do it? because the guards didn't want to enter because of the fleas. <laughs> Resist the devil and he will flee from you? I don't know if that applies. <laughs> but we can get so preoccupied with the mundane, and maybe in the mundane is something to be thankful for if we can step back from it and see it for what it is. Maybe Paul's thorn in the flesh empowered him to do other things. It kept him from pride, from exalting himself. Um, also, a great enemy of um, thankfulness is the sense that just a little more earthly power is all that I need. Just a little more. This flows from our sense that somehow we need to defend ourselves. I want to ask you, are you thankful to possess within you a redemptive power that you can never use to defend yourself? You remember the Roman co cohort falling down? But Jesus allowed them to apprehend him, but he got his disciples free. Jesus died for us to set us free. He had the power to come down from the cross. They constantly said to him, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But he proved it by staying there. Beloved, those to me are the three great lessons. Now, I just want to ask you six questions, and I'm not going to belabor them. Here we go. Are you thankful for the trials that are on the horizon? Are you thankful through the trials you presently endure? Are you thankful for beloved friends who will fail you? Are you thankful in the face of those who would betray you and sell you out? Are you thankful for a salvation and savior so rich and lavish that the trials of the present are not worthy to be compared? Are you thankful to know that for every oppressing reality, there is a greater liberating reality, just as real and just as visible to those in tune with God? 
Those are the questions. Brethren, be thankful. Father, we ask that you will seal your message to our hearts. Help us to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus, and to be thankful like Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.